0: It's Nick
1: Aren't we recording today? Yeah, but why do you sound like that?
0: I had COVID <clears> throat> Bit throaty Wait a sec <laughs>
1: Any better? Still kind of serial killery. i I've got strepsils upstairs, give me a sec Guess I'll run the theme tune Okay, don't go anywhere Just get the strepsils, Nick Sure
0: Hello, all you lovely listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Ghastly podcast with me, Nick and Joanna. This week, we're continuing our meta horror series with episode four, Scream. It's an absolute classic. And if you haven't watched it already, I super duper advise you to just put a little pause on this podcast episode, have a little watch, but then get straight back to us because we've got a ton of interesting stuff to say about this film and you wouldn't want to miss any of it. So, Wes Craven.
1: Wes Craven. Wes Craven indeed.
0: His name is almost synonymous with the horror canon at this stage.
1: Yeah, and absolutely definitely the slasher subgenre, which of course Scream is very much a part of.
0: So he did Nightmare on Elm Street before he did this film and then its subsequent uh sequels. I haven't actually seen Nightmare on Elm Street, what? I'm so sorry to say.
1: I've seen Nightmare on Elm Street, don't you worry, at you've got, listeners. At least
0: you've got one true horror fan. You've not fan. got a completely yeah,
1: uncultured a- podcasting team here. He's a fraud, <laughs> get him on. <up. laughs> to be fair, I haven't seen any of the sequels. I've not heard amazing things about them, but the original is definitely a classic. You should definitely watch it. Get off
0: my lazy backside. Um, get onto my lazy backside.
1: Yeah, get onto uh- your lazy backside, get on the couch and watch it. <laughs>
0: And I think it's good that we're doing Scream this week, because next week we'll be covering Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Mm -hmm. which is the quote-unquote first, tentative first, uh, meta-textual horror film in recent memory, at least, or in terms of popular American culture.
1: Can I just clarify? Nick says this. We are, in fact, going to do Filmster even earlier than Wes Craven's New Nightmare. But at the same time, I do know what you mean in terms of kind of the really popular mainstream
0: Mm, imagination. mm. I
1: think Scream especially. Obviously, this will all become much clearer, I suppose, next week when we have really looked at both films and the way in which they differ from each other, even if they perhaps kind of pursue the same ideal. I think Scream in particular is really the culmination of this kind of popular culture project of Wes Craven's.
0: And it's crazy to think that he allegedly didn't want to even make it at first.
1: Yeah, he wasn't initially crazy about it.
0: The idea. Then he was pretty much cajoled into doing it by the studio. Uh, And they had Kevin Williams' original script. And there was this massive war going on between all these different studios wanting to produce it until the rights were finally acquired by Dimension Films, which is a sub-label of Miramax. And it's funny to think that Scream might never have been made by Wes Craven, even though it's perceived nowadays as one of his finest uh, outputs.
1: It's become such a kind of seminal influence on the genre and on kind of almost film in general. I mean, even today, you know, Scream Five was released recently. Mm. You know, topped box offices, really mm. popular on Twitter, still got a huge dedicated fan base of viewers, some of whom were born before, you know, Scream One even came out, which includes you and me. You know, we are we are actually quite young.
0: We are indeed. In
1: our early twenties. Yeah, only just yeah, and I remember even even as like a kid at like Halloween discos in school, we were all seven years old, nobody had actually seen Scream, no one would have been allowed to have watched it. But you would always get at least like five kids showing up in a ghost face mask.
0: I remember one quite traumatizing Halloween when I was younger, we had, the, we had the neighbors round for just like a little house party thing. One of the neighbors was quite young. She was about four. She was dressed mm. as this pumpkin. She was actually adorable. Um, but one of the older kids, one of my brother's friends, he'd come in the ghost face costume and it wasn't just the ghost face mask. It was the mask with a dripping blood effect where you pumped a heart that you held Ooh. And it had this water that had been coloured red, old was he, and sorry? it dribbled red down the. I, you know what I say? Older. You know when you're younger, and you think back to when you're younger, you're and like, then wow, twelve older year olds—they're like,
1: so old.
0: Yeah, twelve year olds basically an adult. Um, he must have been about thirteen or fourteen, I think. <laughs> um, so he went up to this kid and he pumped the blood like over the mask's face, and she literally had to be taken home. Oh. That was the end of her night. I think she was at the party for about twenty minutes.
1: Traumatising. No,
0: messy. But you have to respect Scream for what it did and its place in the in the canon nowadays, because it really cemented the idea of a teen-oriented horror in a way that had existed beforehand. You know, as earlier slashers like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, all the big ones. But it really turned a lens on teen culture and. Um, sort of responses of young people to media, their relationship with media in a way that hadn't really been done before. And I think that's why it's left such an indelible mark on the genre in general. Someone is playing a deadly game.
2: It all began with the scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello Sydney. One step too far do you like scary movies what's the point they're all the same some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door it's insulting
1: there are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie even from the very first scene scream is essentially genre defining I mean, the iconic opening scene of screen is where high schooler Casey Becker says she's home alone and then she gets a telephone call from a wrong number and she attempts to end the conversation, but despite all of this and her hanging up several times in a row, the caller persistently rings back and soon the conversation turns to a vaguely flirty discussion of horror films. Soon, however, the caller turns on Casey and reveals that from somewhere he's watching her, Casey tells him to stop threatening her and that her boyfriend will be there soon. But Her boyfriend Steve, she finds out, is bound and gagged on the patio and Nicola starts to demand that Casey answer horror movie trivia questions to save his life. When she incorrectly, on a technicality, says that Jason is the killer from Friday the 13th, so Steve is stabbed and gutted in front of her by the killer. And it's at this point that the identity of our mysterious caller is finally revealed. A ghostly figure in a black robe wearing a screaming ghost mask. He then goes on to stab Casey as well, and arranges her body to be kind of hanging from a tree. Obviously, the news of these two double murders rocks the town and the local high school, including the students of the school, not least Sydney Prescott, who was already traumatised from her mother's rape and murder almost one year prior to the events of Scream. The same journalists are sniffing their noses around this time too, including Gail Weathers, who has already suggested that Cotton Weary, the man imprisoned for Sydney's mother's murder, was really innocent. The following day, after a heated discussion about the murders with her friends at school, including Tatum, Stu, Randy, and Sydney's boyfriend, Billy, Sydney gets a similar mysterious phone call and is attacked in her bedroom by the killer, who will from now on be referred to as Ghostface after his mask. She gets away from him but when Billy climbs through the window to meet her he drops a cell phone and Sydney suspects that he was the one who called her and she runs away. Billy is arrested but while he spends the night in jail Sydney gets another threatening call which ends up being traced along with the previous calls to Sydney's father's phone. Sydney and Billy argue about the whole situation with Billy upset that Sydney could have ever suspected him and Sydney feeling as though Billy doesn't take her trauma seriously enough School, however, is quickly suspended after the news of Sydney's assault and practical jokes involving the Ghostface mask by other students of the school, by Principal Himbury, who himself is murdered by the real Ghostface shortly after.
0: Stu holds a party to celebrate the school's closure with his friends. Gail Weathers and the local Deputy Sheriff Dewey, who is also Tatum's older brother, have developed a working relationship at this point and attend uninvited to investigate. Whilst alone in the garage of Stu's house, Tatum is chased and murdered by Ghostface when her neck is crushed under the garage door. The news of Principal Himbury's murder then reaches the party, and most of the partygoers decide to leave. While this is all happening, Sydney and Billy reconcile upstairs and have sex. Suddenly, Ghostface appears and attacks them, stabbing Billy. Sydney manages to run away and tries to get in the van with Gale's cameraman, but he has his throat slashed by Ghostface. Sydney runs back inside and takes Stewie's gun. At this point, Randy and Stu show up at the front door yelling that the other is the killer. Sydney runs away to find an injured Billy on the floor. She decides to give him the gun, but then he shoots Randy. It turns out that the killer is actually a pair of killers, Billy and Stu, who have been working together. It turns out that they had a plan to kill Sydney and frame her father for serial murders. They also killed Sydney's mother a year ago, all as revenge for her mother having an affair with Billy's father, causing his own mother to walk out on him.
1: Sydney manages to escape when Gail comes back and dons the Ghostface costume herself, dropping a TV onto Stu's head and allowing Gail to shoot Billy dead. Randy comes back, still alive, and warns Sydney that in horror movies, the killer always comes back for one last scare. As Billy starts to get up, Sydney shoots him again. And that is the end of Scream 1, but of course only the beginning of an entire franchise. Of horror movies, which continues to this day.
0: So, as you can tell from the plot, Scream is very much interested in questions of the horror genre as a whole and how horror and the watching of horror relates to teen culture.
1: I think something that's also really crucial for us to remember, just before we go any further, is that listening to the plot of Scream now. It kind of sounds, you know, fairly paint by numbers, but we have to bear in mind that this was 1996. This mm. was a time when, well, see, first of all, it was a time before Scream had been released, because, you know, it was before Scream had been released. Scream was mm. being released into a world which didn't have Scream in it already. <laughs> Who would have thought it? But as in, even things like, say, I don't know, obviously just Slash and Domra had already been established by this point, Nightmare on Elm Street being yeah. a classic example. But such a kind of metafictional, self-aware version of the genre. And I think one that was so particularly tied up with teen culture and one that was so aware of its audience, that had just not been done on a super popular scale. Everything mm. has to be with that caveat of this is a film from 1996. This is a film that changed game. I think it's really important to remember that the whole time. But yes, I completely agree with you. I mean, The entire plot of the film revolves not only around teens and the way in which they kind of react to murder and violence going on in their lives around them, but also in the way in which they kind of decode the events happening around them through the language of film and through the language of horror in particular. Mm. And this is referenced again and again and again in Scream, not only through the literally explicit, viewing of horror films which does take place such as say for example the party at stew's house but also in the way in which every single thing that happens the kids are always seem to be one step ahead of thinking of okay and if this was a film what would i do how would i survive this situation if i was in a horror film and i think it's a really interesting social commentary as we've already discussed because you know we've been doing this met horror thing for a few episodes now and i think the theme that keeps coming up time and time again is that Yes, we're watching horror films where at times the characters seem to be aware of the tropes and conventions and genres of horror films and kind of decide, make decisions accordingly. But also that we as viewers, we are equally kind of afflicted by this syndrome of being only being able to read the events that go on around us in this these kind of filmic, fictional narrative terms. I think that's something really important to remember. I think that's something that we have to always watch out for. This episode is being recorded in early March, um, kind of at the height of the crisis in Ukraine. And say, for example, you might notice a lot in a lot of popular commentary about the war between Russia and Ukraine, this kind of very, almost kind of Marvel movie narrative of, oh, you know, all the good guys winning the end. Or oh, who would play President Zelensky in a film based yeah. on the Ukraine war? And it is so true. we This was in 1996 and now 25 years later, we're still so just soaked in perceiving everything through the literal lens, I suppose, of film.
0: And it's almost impossible not to inflect reality with a sense of narrative or mm. a sense of... Character or tropes in general. Exactly. You know, Putin, Putin being decried as this like, I don't know if you noticed, but as soon as the crisis broke out, this isn't. I'm not being an apologist for Putin. Can I just say that now? But uh, he immediately became the. He was being called as a villain. You know. Yeah. Evil.
1: Yeah, he is a bad guy here. People are saying, like this. This shouldn't be difficult for you guys to understand. Putin is a bad guy. And it's like what. <laughs> But in Scream, in a weird way, being trope savvy is kind of almost a survival mechanism. I mean, so for example, there's that a scene where Randy and Stu are going through horror, mo- horror movie tropes. And Randy is like, oh, so, for example, if you want to survive a horror film, you know, you have to be a virgin. Do not ever have sex in a horror film. You will die. Mm. And mm. it's kind of played for laughs at the time. But actually, even within Scream's own narrative, it's right. And obviously, Randy is one of the survivors at the end Mm. of the film. And also, um, for Sydney, in many ways, this recognition of and knowing how to play with horror film tropes, for them, it does aid their survival.
0: Mm. I think Scream's approach is a particularly intriguing use of meta-commentary, if you look at it from the perspective Mm. of how to address the moral, ethical quandaries surrounding horror movies and the legacy of horror films, the molds in which we create new ones. So Sydney is a virgin up until she sleeps with Billy, you know, leading up to the final act. And you'd expect that fulfillment of her transgress of that transgression of horror, um, of the horror trope to lead to her demise of some sort. But Scream actually gives credit to those who can navigate the horror genre with their knowledge, their inbuilt knowledge from their consumption of media, and it rewards them. For example, Randy doesn't die, which you think you're kind of like, "Mm, you you seem like the kind of character that is going to kick it at some point, but no, he makes it out, it's great. It does that while at the same time it doesn't cave into the fundamentals of kind of patriarchal thinking, masculinist thinking that established those tropes in the first place. So on one hand it's rewarding, on the other hand it's building and expanding and breaking down those roles and you're left with a film that is actually managing to be quite progressive for a slasher film. Mm. And that's where I think that meta-commentary can be used in such a useful way to reflect on a cinematic tradition in a way that expands an awareness of not just social justice, but the way that we depict people.
1: Would you say, getting onto the terms of, say, social justice and also, I suppose, kind of masculinities, would you say that Scream in particular has a lot to say about specifically like American teen masculinity? And I suppose that like, kind of masculinity relationship to the media because obviously the entire crux of the film at the end of the day is kind of Billy feeling threatened I suppose by the sexuality of not only um, Sydney's mother but also Sydney herself and kind of the role in which kind of unbridled female sexuality for him Destroys his life and kind of destroys his nuclear family.
0: You have to look back at the time, I think, to to a lot of what people were saying in in popular commentary at the time, which was, look at how society is changing what's going on here? Why are family? Why is the traditional nuclear family breaking down even more? Mm. Why are broken households becoming the new norm? And yeah, classic, women got blamed and Billy even pulls up this random popular psychology uh, statement where he says at the end of the film, oh yeah, do you know that maternal abandonment uh, leads to psychopathology, which squarely lands the blame yeah. of his own violence at the feet of... The mother who abandons. And that th- th- by proxy is aimed at Sydney, and Sydney becomes responsible and also the victim of the violence that he would want to inflict on her as a result of her mother. So it's not just the fact that you have these masculinities around that are taking actions of violent vengeance, they are also reinforcing these ideas of you inherit the sins of the generation that come before you.
1: And I think that it's really interesting as well that um, not only is so much of Scream's narrative based around ultimately this kind of sense of friend masculinity and a sense of the friend family, but also that Scream is so willing to engage with the history of misogyny mm. in horror and the way in which women and female sexuality are treated but it doesn't just position Mm. billy as a guy who is threatened and who turns to violence as a way of resolving his feelings it very much situates him within like a long lineage of horror films and horror tropes Mm. and it very much acknowledges misogyny as part of these tropes
0: and you're not expecting it really because what we've what we divine from like a lot of the films that we've looked at so far in this series is that meta-commentary is underpinned by parody, satire cynicism so the instances where meta-commentary is actually genuinely being employed in like a constructive way in terms of calling out a genre, they are kind of few and far between and Mm. on the, the other side of the spectrum you have that sense of meta-commentary as a, as a way of disavowing, of creating this sort of feeling of, oh, we can't do anything about it. Oh, it's impossible. You know, how do we find the way out? You know, they dig themselves into such a, into such a, a hole. But I think mm. with Scream, what's cool is that you do genuinely see the accountability being directed somewhere. And that's quite yeah. refreshing, even now. This is
2: standard horror movie stuff. night Revisited, man. Yeah. Why would he want to kill his own girlfriend? There's always some stupid bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend. That's the beauty of it all. Simplicity. Besides, if it gets too complicated, you lose your target audience. Well, what's his reason? Maybe
1: Sydney wouldn't have sex with him.
2: <laughs> what, is She's saving herself for you? Maybe.
1: Now that Billy tried to mutilate her. This is another thing about screen. Now, on the one hand, absolutely plays into common horror movie tropes and, you know, proves them right a lot of the time. But yeah. at other points, it does subvert them. It does like to say to us, hang on, don't you start getting too comfortable just because this is a meta horror film. Don't you start assuming yeah. that because you know the tropes you Can figure out everything that's going on, mm. and I thought for example that what it would be is to say, for example, Stu being the killer kind of makes sense because mm. you know he's the one person who was never mentioned, yeah. as a suspect, yeah. But I did think that it was really he's,
0: he's got this quite unhinged energy as well. He's a little yeah. bit he's a bit manic, you can see the it's the, that, that Scooby Doo energy, yes. Oh my god, can we just talk about it? Just radiates <laughs> the, the, the strange kind of, yeah, the intertextual relationship of Scooby Doo to Scream,
1: <laughs> haunting and We can't talk about that, Nick. It needs its whole episode its own episode to do justice to it that's
0: true but yeah I just kept thinking why is Shaggy dribbling at the mouth I don't like this (laughs) why is Shaggy dying of stab wounds this is very upsetting but I thought
1: that was a really interesting part of it that yeah like Stu makes sense I can see Stu being the killer Mm. but with Billy it kind of felt like they went back and forth so many times of like okay it's not actually Billy silly Sydney (laughs) silly Sydney past the point you think okay it's not Billy and then it is Billy I don't know what did you think at the time? Did you get fooled? I'm trying by to re- I'm trying
0: to remember what my initial reaction was to it because of course you know I've, I've rewatched it a couple of times recently just to get it fresh in my mind. Uh the first time I watched screen, I genuinely think it did it did get me. Like it caught me off guard. Mm. Just because as well as the fact that it's constantly directing you a little bit towards Billy, a little bit away, um it does ultimately try and completely throw you off the scent by having Billy get stabbed by Ghostface. Mm. Uh, and so you think, oh, yeah, yeah. I
1: thought the fact that there were two Ghostface killers was really clever. Mm.
0: If you were crazy little Billy and you're wanting to to exact this crazy revenge, you would definitely get an accomplice. Not just an accomplice, but uh, someone as kooky as Stu who was just going to um, kind of go along with it and he was going to use all of that pent up sort of crazy energy and release it in this very sadistic way.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, with Billy, how we've already discussed is it, that kind of idea of like, oh, you know, threatened American masculinity. He's got a tragic backstory. Oh, yeah. You know, his mother walked out on him. The
0: kind of thing that Funny Games was pointing, um, pointing and laughing at.
1: Yeah, exactly. Kind of making fun of the idea that, oh, well, you know... Poor Billy, if only, if only his mother... Because on the one hand, it obviously Scream does kind of point out the absurdity of the assertion that just purely watching horror films would make someone do all this. Mm. But then it also, on the other hand, does... Obviously, it's all with kind of a layer of irony over it, so I'm not actually accusing Scream of just kind of uncritically playing into this. What is it
0: that Billy says at the end? He's like...
1: He's like, movies don't create psychos.
0: They make like m- psychos, they psychos more creative. I mean, exactly. Step, step, that's, step. It, that's
1: exactly what it was. Yeah. And that's to be fair. That's what I said in the Funny Games episode, isn't it? Mm. I was like, I don't think films inspire violence, but I think violence. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say it in an in exact... Oh, what's that rhetorical device called? What? You know what I mean.
0: Rhetorical you, device. Which one?
1: You know the one I mean when it's like, oh, you say... um like love is not war war is love or something
0: is it chiasmus
1: chiasmus yes i think so so that kind of chiasmus yeah i didn't say it in terms of chiasmus but i was like no i don't think anyone who would never have committed a violent crime otherwise mm. would be inspired by a movie to go out and kill someone but i do think perhaps to say certain movies inspire methodology mm. of certain crimes for example
0: and you brought up the the Godfather thing, which oh, yeah, genuinely of, like, I had mafia. no idea. Like, that was so interesting.
1: It's true. There are a lot of Italian mafia kids who are obsessed with it and want to be like that.
0: And it does bring to the fore that whole argument about like, does art imitate life? Does life imitate mm. art? Yeah, What's A little bit of chiasmus there for you. Mm-mm. But um, mm. what I was
1: originally saying, anyway, sorry, <laughs> sorry yeah, yeah. was that um, with Billy, obviously everything is done with like a heavy layer of like irony. Mm. And Billy is, of course, the villain. So there's this kind of idea of shut the hell up, Billy. Don't be mm. stupid. Oh, poor you, your mum walked out. Sydney's mum died, you bitch. So, you know, <laughs> don't start acting like you're the most hard done by person here. But what I thought was really interesting is the fact that like, yes, we can talk about Billy until the cows come home. But with <laughs> Stu, he is just some guy, you know? he's just some guy and he's billy's accomplice i thought that was actually really interesting and quite right for discussion because obviously Stu, along with randy is one probably one of the more horror movie obsessed um kids from that group
0: yeah i think from the offset you're kind of like what are you doing he's a bit Stu's kind of weird he's got this he's got this um unsettling vibe to him what is Uh, it he
1: makes jokes he makes jokes about the murders right and even billy is like "Uh, excuse me it's called tact. Yes, and Even she's like, yeah, like,
0: whatever. Yeah, let's draw a line at that, mate. And then he's like, foaming at the mouth. I don't know. Mm. Um, I love when um, Sydney at the end of the film is like, "What's your excuse going to be when the police arrive?" And then Stu's like peer pressure i'm super sensitive (laughs) it's it's like a parody of um conceptions of teenage behavior yeah like anti-drugs
1: campaigning it's like
0: it kind of feels sort of pamphlety or uh graduate drama pieces where they talk about like peer pressure avoid avoid um so it's like the teenager as we know it now um Mm. emerged in the 90s not not just simply as like not just simply as a fully formed social group on its in its own right with, you know, its own... I was going to
1: say, because if you ask the historians about that, Nick, I'm pretty sure they'll tell you it was the 50s. Yeah,
0: okay. a social group But, image. but, but I know okay, what you mean. Okay. This
1: particular variety, this particular brand of teenager. The teenager
0: as a sort of self-aware. Yeah. Like, this is Generation X, right? Yeah. So Generation X brought up on media in a way that no generation before had been and in mm. that way they're aware of themselves to an extent that no generation had been before because they're consuming cultural depictions of what a teenager is and then also assimilating it and becoming it so mm. when stew is like oh, peer pressure i'm super sensitive to it's it's not just funny because it's ridiculous that peer pressure would make you want to like hop on the bandwagon and kill someone but it's also a bit of a kind of sly reference to how being a teenager with a capital T is something that you become through consuming an idea of what a teenager is and then mm-hmm. you end up acting like a teenager and it reinforces itself right doesn't it? It perpetuates the idea of the teenager as a social construct
2: God damn it Stu! Sorry Billy, I guess I got a little too zealous huh Give me the knife oh. Give me the knife Now! You see, Sid, everybody dies but us. Everybody dies but us. We're going to carry on and plan the sequel because let's face it, baby, these days, you got to have a sequel.
1: Ah! Ah! But what do you think then about that analysis, for example, applied to Stu specifically, where Stu is a very interesting character who despite seemingly lacking any real motivation other than boredom and irony-poisoned brain, you know, joins Billy on his kind of murder crusade. Yeah. And I, I did always think that because on the one hand, while I was there, like, yeah, Stu's a killer. That makes so much sense. Rules of horror film. Mm. He's the, you know, fun guy who we have no reason to suspect. But why actually would he go along with Billy and help out with this?
0: I think Stu's role is definitely—he's uh, a sort of every man in the idea of like the young white cis male who feels who is sensitive to these undercurrents of of frustration and rage at the, sort of like the, the renegotiation of ro- of the masculine ideal and the role of, that men should play in society, especially American society at the time. So I think, yeah, okay, he's a little bit unhinged, a bit frothy, but. At the same time, there's this. You think, yeah, you know, this this kind of could happen, whether or not it's like anything to do with um, horror movies leading the charge and you know destroying people's senses of morality or rotting people's brains, as you said. It's it's to do more with how far would someone in that situation with those kinds of undercurrents of of frustration of anger of sort of outrage at what's going on in society to their own position to their own sense of identity how far would you really have to push them to end up getting embroiled in these mm. in these horrific acts you know and if you're a yes man then the avalanche starts to pick up speed quite quickly because you're working from that kernel of of frustration and crisis where everything that you were told whilst you were growing up, it's starting to fall through, you know?
1: And I think there's something that's really interesting as well is obviously the fact that Sydney, obviously, is our main character and as our final girl is a kind of blamed girl. by social... Honestly, final girl as a concept is so interesting because it's become such like a part of the pop culture lexicon, but it did mm. actually start... Everyone
0: knows the final girl, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like... It's it not, started as it's... an
1: academic term. Yeah.
0: It's funny because like that just goes to show how I mean, there's literally
1: a film media
0: savvy. called
1: Final Girls that came out in about 2016,
0: I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think I heard of that.
1: And something that I think is so interesting about Sydney in her capacity as a final girl, obviously, is the way in which... Because, you know, the final girl, kind of as Ronnie had already described, is just kind of this um, kind of pure um, figurehead who is kind of subversive enough, so she's a woman to start with, mm. but the male viewer still kind of identifies with her because she's kind of got like, I mean, say for example, she's got a masculine name, Sydney, um, mm. she's kind of boyish in dress and behaviour, and she's still, she's got like the desirability factor to kind of be like an object of the male gaze, but she can also be, she's kind of like virginal and masculine enough for the male viewer to identify with. And something that I thought was so interesting about the fact that yes, Sydney does fulfil this kind of archetype of the final girl. Is nevertheless the whole reason why she's embroiled in all of this mess in the first place is because she is being kind of blamed by proxy for the actions of her mother as a kind of inheritor of like all female, you know, trouble and problems. What does she
0: say? She says, um, You know, I'm worried that, you know, I'm going to be just like my mom. I'm going to be the bad seed.
1: Yeah. Like Sydney herself is so embroiled in and aware of this kind of culture. And this is the thing. Everyone in Scream is a product of culture. And I really like the fact that it doesn't shy away from acknowledging that and that no one is just a character in and of themselves. Every single one of them has been influenced not only by the events in their life, but by kind of the dominant American culture all of generation x as you said have been imbibing since birth and it's this culture of you know like kind of shared female responsibility i think i guess gail as well is also kind of a alternative vision compared to like what sydney has internalized throughout her whole life of, i suppose Mm. like female sexuality like with her relationship with dewey the deputy sheriff who was obviously like a lot more mild-mannered than either billy or stew for example
0: well, there's a really interesting uh, there's a really interesting article, but on the horror home room from 2021, which is it talks about white American masculinity and its depiction in the film, and Dewey is diametrically opposed to Billy in his manifestation of masculinity. It's an inclusive sense of masculinity versus, you know, a hegemonic or toxic masculinity that's inhabited by Billy and even you could say pulled on in the ghost face outfit I feel like ghost face is such an interesting
1: yeah as a concept c- yeah anyone would thing, it's that a concept. their kind of representation of themselves mm. and their pain and the violence that they want to inflict on others mm. it's just kind of because obviously the whole ghost face as we said before is very referential to um, kind of Munch's screen painting it's super mm. replicable replicable mm. yeah mm. Um,
0: it's a mass manufactured and mask. also we,
1: we've spoken about our experiences as children <laughs> seeing our every man in his dog dressing up as <laughs> ghost face at
0: Halloween she <laughs> has a little ghost face dog costume oh I think it'd be oh. quite
1: cute but yeah I think it's so interesting because it's such like a it seems like a costume that's so clearly designed for kind of mass media consumption I think that's something also really interesting obviously at the end of the day Scream is a film mm. it's not real But um, there's something also in a way in which Billy and Stu go about their killing spree, which is not only inspired by horror movies and kind of horror Mm. culture and the culture of violence in America in general, but also, sorry, Hickok, also I think it's very aspirational of becoming kind of a part of that American modern mythology Mm. of the murderer and the killer. And there is that kind of desperate want to not only follow horror film cues, I think, but also to kind of be subsumed into that kind of language of horror and to inspire that fear in others.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's not like, well, the thing is they're kind of aspiring to to be sort of assimilated into that cultural continuum and to draw off it in the way that they go about the murders. But at the same time, you could say there's a marked difference because with the antagonists of films like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre... Oh, here comes the Nightmare the 13th, on Elm Street expert who hasn't
1: even way, watched it. Clear the way, roll
0: out the red carpet. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not like... So so Michael Myers, yeah, Freddy Krueger, Leatherface, Jason Voorhees, or should I say Jason Voorhees' his mom? Uh-huh. But. huh they they sort of form this kind of pantheon of recognisable, iconic male killers, wouldn't yeah. you say? Um, but Ghostface, I think is, well, even int- intrinsically in the name, you could say it's representative, but Ghostface is kind of, is different because it's this, you think, it's this ephemeral identity. gender think that- <laughs> Ghostface <laughs> is gender-neutral? Ghostface doesn't exist on the binary, no. Well, um, it's true, and
1: I know that obviously in other screen films, Ghostface is the mantle the mask, shall we say, is worn by women in other screen films. So mm. no, it's absolutely not just a masculine character.
0: Oh, sure. But you could say, you can argue that Ghostface is, is coded as masculine. Mm. It's a masculinist st- construct. Well, it is true as, that as all a, the kids who wore Ghostface
1: masks in primary school were all boys. I never ever saw oh, a girl yeah. go dressed as Ghostface.
0: That's the thing. I feel like it was it was definitely sold as like a male costume. But in the sense that... Ghostface isn't one person. He's like a whole it's like a whole carousel of men who move through mm. the identity of Ghostface and they're all they're almost disposable in that sense. The 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 males who take on or the and the females who take on uh the role of Ghostface. It's not in the mm. same way that Michael Myers was always Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger was always Freddy Krueger.
1: Yeah, I mean they um, literally their I names assume I haven't
0: seen it. <laughs> and but yeah, and then Leatherface as well always Leatherface but Ghostface inhabits a broad range of different enactors yeah. that take on I think that's the, the, the role of Ghostface, interesting. the identity. Kind of become
1: subsumed into, you know, the language of the horror movie when you take on the mantle of Ghostface. All of yeah. your actions are in service of furthering this kind of narrative. You kind of stop becoming an independent actor and you're subsumed into this wider category. Somebody was there. Hey, Christy, wait Billy, up. Someone, someone
2: tried to kill I know, me. I know, I know. The cops said I scared him away. You know, it wasn't me, Sid. I know. He called me again last night at Tatum's house. You see? Couldn't have been me. I was in jail. Remember? I'm so sorry. Please understand. Understand what? When I have a girlfriend who would rather accuse me of being a psychopathic killer than touch me? you know that's not true then what is it what is it billy i was attacked and nearly filleted last night i mean between us you haven't been the same since since your mother died is your brain leaking my mom was killed i can't believe you're bringing this up no it's been a year tomorrow one year tomorrow i know what i think it's time you got over that i mean when my mom left my dad i accepted it. it's the way it is She's not coming back your parents split up this is not the same thing your mom left town she's not lying in a coffin somewhere okay 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 i'm sorry it's it's a bad analogy but it's just that i don't want my girlfriend back
0: so kathleen roe carlin wrote this article about Scream, popular culture and feminism's third wave where she talks about how billy poses the threat of the inherent unknowability of men and the men that women have around them in their lives can potentially not be the people that they expect them to be. Even the fact that Billy was trying to frame Sydney's father at the end just goes to show how they were trying to use that trope themselves to carry out their revenge. So it's a fundamentally gothic proposal. For example, Mr. Rochester from Jane Eyre or Maxim de Winter from Rebecca. Or Bluebeard, even you know it's it's the unknowable or mysterious man who takes a wife only to have the wife discover this awful hidden secret, mm. you know. And I so I think Ghostface definitely speaks directly to that anxiety about what are men hiding, you know, a man, and even yeah, what in, are you hiding, Nick? especially on the internet? No, sorry, what am <laughs> I hiding? Indeed, just like, wait for the Freudian slips, probably. But um, even nowadays on the internet, you know, we're all ghost faces to a certain extent. You're this anonymous actor who's given a free reign in the same way that people are given free reign when they inhabit the ghost face costume. They can do what they want, really, without direct consequences. And so it it speaks to that sense of, like, we don't really know who people really are, what people would really do. How Um, would you
1: say that Scream kind of sets a new standard for the genre. Where does scream really take it to places that horror just has not been before and change it to become a kind of the recognizable genre that we know today?
0: Um so I think that in in answering that, I feel like it's worth relating back to another article that was written, this time by Valerie Wee from the University of Illinois, about Scream the Scream Trilogy and this concept of which I'd never heard of, heard of before, hyper postmodernism. Oh, Whoa, it's on I'm steroids. box
1: postmodernism.
0: This is not just postmodern horror. This is hyper postmodernism horror.
1: It's kind of very French when you think about it, isn't it? Like <laughs> <laughs> hyper, hyper postmodern.
0: Oh, oh. <laughs> oh god, I'm not going to be able to like shake that out. I'm gonna look at whenever I see that word I'm just gonna cool. okay so I think it's useful looking at this concept of hyper postmodernism because it just goes to show um the extent to which scream not only in in itself as a text but also in its wider implications in terms of marketing and the way it sat intertextually with other cultural products at the time it really did pave the way for a relationship with film that films hadn't yet done or achieved. First of all, Valerie Wee says in her article that hyper-postmodernism is a heightened degree of intertextual referencing and self-reflexivity that ceases to function at the traditional level of tongue-in-cheek subtext and emerges instead as the actual text of the films. So basically, when Scream was coming out, they thought, how can we, within the structure of the text itself, create opportunities? for marketing. For example, the, the creation of the soundtrack opened up these opportunities for music videos to be created that would then be shown on MTV, which was hugely popular with American teenagers at the time. And Dewey, the police officer, would appear in a music video, for example. But then that music video would then work on and reflect back on the original text of the film so there was this very novel approach to marketing and also filmmaking going on through screen that encouraged intertextuality and also the idea of borrowing between media in a way that films really hadn't scratched the surface of before and that is entirely owing to the state of mass media at the time of the creation of the film and so the other example that we talked about is how Kevin Williamson also was the the writer of Dawson's Creek from 1998 to 2003. Mm. So Scream referenced at mul- Scream, sorry. Scream is actually referenced at multiple points throughout the series and the opening scene where Drew Barrymore gets chopped up is even recreated in one of the episodes using a like a proxy name for Scream. So Scream kind of got the ball rolling in terms of drawing television film and other media even music closer and closer together and creators for example Kevin Williams and the writer would then move between different forms much more readily in a way that wasn't really possible at the time and that kind of that that in itself is a microcosm of what postmodernism is about you know it's about the breaking down of boundaries it's about the dissolution of 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 single textual authority and and a preference for multiplicity And that's the indelible impact that Scream has had on the industry and the way in which not only horror films, but films are made today.
2: Listen, I am two seconds away from calling the police. They'd never make it in time. We're out in the middle of nowhere. What do you want? To see what your insides look like. Scary movies, it's a death wish. You might as well just come out here to investigate a strange noise or something. Look, you've had your fun now, so I think you better just leave, or else, or else, what? Or else, my boyfriend will be here any second, and he'll be pissed when he finds out. I thought you didn't have a boyfriend. I lied. I do have a boyfriend, and he'll be here any second, so your ass better be cool. Sure, I swear he's big and he plays football and he'll
1: kick the shit out of you I also think is so interesting about what you were saying about the name of Scream and the way it was changed Mm. obviously for Dawson's Creek is that did you know that Scream was actually originally supposed to be called Scary Movie and then obviously the big bosses Uh... were like oh no let's change it nah we're not having Scary Movie and then obviously the actual Scary Movie films got made (laughs) a few years later
0: that makes a lot of sense, though, because if it were called Scary Movie, that would, you know, in terms of the, like the meta-commentary of the film, it would make mm-hmm. so much sense because it is, like you know, this is a scary movie. Yeah. Isn't there something else that does something like that?
1: I'm not sure. A film
0: or a book or something that's it's just called, like, Spooky Book.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Book's um, sp- I know there's a book that's called something like They Both Die at the End. Or something yeah, like that. That kind it's of that kind of vibe title. I mean, Scary Movie obviously is another example of, kind of meta I mean the scary movie I think is basically Scream if Scream dropped any pretense to seriousness mm. I say pretense that's not fair this is why I'm, this is why we're covering Scream for example and not the scary movie series in our meta horror commentary series because scary movie is parody but Scream whilst it's very meta can also be watched as a straight horror movie and taken quite seriously and something mm. that I always thought was interesting as well is you know how we were saying about say the whole theme of Drew Barrymore at the start I think there was also, again, in marketing terms, I mean, kind of subverting audience expectations of what a horror film should be. Obviously, Drew Barrymore was a huge name in the mid-90s, and she is all over the movies advertising. She is there on the poster. And Mm. to anyone who did not know what the plot of Scream was actually going to be, you would assume Drew Barrymore is the main character. You would assume she's the protagonist. And then, obviously, she gets killed off in the first 10 minutes. I remember, I think Wes Craven himself even said, that is kind of a specific message to viewers. Look, any preconceived notions that you had going into this film, abandon them because yeah. we are going right. to mess you around. We're going to mess you around.
0: <laughs> and the choice of Drew Barrymore, the choice of Drew Barrymore actually it also played into um, her own history as a performer. Mm. So it, it drew on her own history of. Uh, Here's what I found. Oh. <laughs> Nina Simone? <laughs> Ignore. Um, it drew on the way that Drew Barrymore had, was regarded in popular culture as someone who had dealt with victimization and abuse at the hands of the Hollywood system. So it was quite an apt, but still nevertheless, as you say, completely shocking moment to see her succumb to the killer so quickly mm. and in such a violent way. So, Joanna, did you know that Scream is meant to have been based, albeit loosely, on the case of the Gainesville Ripper from 1990?
1: I read a little bit about this. I haven't read loads. But yeah, I mean, I from my awareness, that was kind of a similar case. Okay, not in terms of who the actual perpetrator was. But um, yeah, I think it's a similar kind of case, right, of a kind of small community being kind of terrorised by the seemingly random murders of a lot of its young people. Because, you know, and this is something I think is also so interesting about Scream, because obviously horror films are not just horror films. Unfortunately, murders do happen in real life, including, as much as we might like to say they definitely don't at all, murders inspired by other horror films do occasionally happen in real life. I mean, there was a whole Slenderman murders, for example, around a decade ago. What was that? You're not aware of the Slenderman murders?
0: I didn't know there were Slender Man murders. Oh, you're going to have to
1: Google them. <laughs> that is a story for another oh. time, listeners. Oh, my God. But Nick, you better Google them. But the point being, Scream is very recognising of the kind of stranger danger notion of it all, because obviously Ghostface appears to people like Casey and Sydney, etc., in this disguise and kind of just as this mysterious wrong number phone call. But actually, most murders in real life are from people you know. In the case of Sydney, mm. it's true. That kind of stranger danger murderer archetype that she's so scared of and that horror films are taught us to be so scared of does actually turn out to be close to her. In fact, domestic almost, first yeah. of all, with Billy trying to blame her father and then with the fact that it does actually turn out to be Billy. And I thought that was such mm. an interesting subversion as well. And also, mm. again, for mm. kind of like questions of American masculinities and femininity because of the fact that it kind of acknowledges the error, almost, that horror as a genre kind of tricks us into committing of assuming that the threat is from this random attack, from this serial yeah. killer or this monster, when in reality, violence tends to come from the home and from the people we love. And we like to think, oh, well, you know, we're, so, we're such horror movie aficionados. We'd be able to use our horror movie trope awareness to get out of it. And while that's partly true in Scream, it's not entirely true either. I mean, Casey. Obviously, as we see from the phone call at the beginning, she is kind of a horror film bluff. She knows what she's talking about, and yeah. she does kind of call the killer's ghost faces bluff as well. When he's like, "Don't you know this is a horror film? You know, you know, you know, you should never say who's there." And she's like, "Yeah, whatever." And like hangs up on him mm. and stops talking to him. But it's still not good enough. But but it does discuss kind of the impact on horror of horror movies on kind of the way in which people engage, especially generations X onwards, engage with the world around them and kind of the code the events happening around him it also does not by any means let off first of all societal pressures and factors but also things like we've just mentioned like the mass media and we think actually because that's the thing as well because so much of the kind of panic around horror films has been perpetuated in the mass media you know it's fox news going oh my god are horror films you know making our children violent and like in the uk um the conservative party on the bbc um saying stuff like, oh my god, you know, the video nasties, you know, that are leading to more murders and, you know, a more dangerous society. It's kind of kind of throwing, showing holding up a mirror to that mass media and being like, sorry, do you think that you're exempt from this somehow? Do you think that what we do our art is kind of like socially dangerous and creates a generation of psychopaths, but you're kind of sensationalist reporting on real crimes, that's that's completely fine. And that doesn't have any effect. It kind of points out that hypocrisy, and I like that. But I also like the fact that it does allow redemption to Gale at the end of the day as well, and it kind of rises above.
0: So so how would you connect that to the character of the headmaster when he's talking to those guys who are running around the halls in ghost face masks just after the murder was committed. And he says, he says, you make me sick. Your entire havoc-inducing, thieving, whoring generation disgusts me. Which is like intense for a headmaster, let's all agree. Mm. And then he says, he even says we should hang you from a tree so we can expose you for the heartless, desensitised little shits you are. Honestly. (laughs) Whilst he's swinging around this crazy pair of scissors. And it's like, okay, Jesus, you shouldn't be allowed around kids. It's a
1: perfect embodiment of that hypocrisy completely. And also I love the fact as well that he's played by um, Henry Winkler, who was Fonzie in Happy Days, which is like the um, 1970s sitcom about the 1950s. Um, And he was kind of like the bad boy character like the bad influence of his leather jacket. And more recently, um he played Barry Zuckercorn in Arrested Development. But um yeah, he's a legend. And I thought it was very funny that they kind of used this former teen idol of like bad influences mm. to play this <laughs> principal character going like your generation. And I think obviously no it's sad because it's been you know 25 years since Scream came out and it's still mm. so relevant. That kind of oh your generation you're all horrible we should just hang you on it's like wait what excuse me
0: <laughs> that's what i think was insane about that little tirade he goes on he's because a bit creepy <laughs> he's as not well like, with
1: sydney in general
0: oh yeah like yeah like the hand yeah yeah it's that entitlement to like sydney's body isn't it mm. um and the way he talks to those kids is just so inappropriate well he expels them as well which is one thing but then he's um acting as a mouthpiece for the kind of violent intrusions that Ghostface would endorse. Mm.
1: And what I think was really interesting as well is the fact that when Ghostface does obviously eventually kill him it's kind of weirdly also kind of like folk hero moment for Ghostface <laughs> person of the, you know these, I mean. these are the people yeah it is kind of this moment of like generation x being like shut the hell up and like turning that back on you know the big bad adults
0: but ironically fulfilling what the adult yeah, thinks exactly. of the generation you know so there's a lot of like there's a lot of ways you could look at that
2: you make me so sick. Your entire habit-inducing, thieving, whoring generation disgusts me. So, two of your fellow students just savagely murdered, and this is the way that you show your compassion and sensitivity, huh? Let me show you something. You're both expelled. Get oh, Come on, Mr. Hembry. It was just a joke. That's not fair. You're absolutely right. It is not fair. Fairness would be to rip your insides out, hang you from a tree so we can expose you for the heartless, desensitised little shit that you are.
1: So if you go on, say, for example, a website like Tumblr, and if you look up screen there, you find a lot of actual thirsting after like characters like Billy, for example, and particular, not just in the case of Billy, but also specifically Billy after he kind of reveals himself as the killer to Sydney, you know, a whole kind of bit where he's like licking the blood off his hands, etc.
0: This is so classic Tumblr. I'm glad to glad slash upset that Tumblr's just not changed yeah, Tumblr's still there. in 10 years. Still very strong.
1: <laughs> so what you were saying before about like that fear of like men revealing themselves to have like this hidden second side. What do you think about this kind of like fetishization amongst a lot of probably teen, a lot of the viewers and it's probably female viewers as well of screen, where not only are they like still idolising Billy, also specifically idolising like the post-reveal Billy in this the, kind of Billy as
0: serial killer, yeah. yeah.
1: What do you think? Do you think that's intentional? Do you think there is any intention for the character to be kind of turned into this symbol of attraction? Or do you think that's just weird girls being weird girls?
0: <laughs> so it's interesting because I think it does feed into that uh that thing where, you know, that kind of, you know, that that film, 365 Days, where oh, you have the the really problematic, like, super handsome guy who's part of the mafia, knows no sense of personal boundaries, just sexually assaults and imprisons this woman. There is a culture of sort of, like, longing after those types of men mm-hmm. in, in a lot of this, not just fan fiction, but, like, outright, you know, films and stuff. It's also a bit like you, in the sense that there was this sense of, attraction to this man because he's got this hidden side to him
1: completely and i think as well what we also have to bear in mind when we talk about these kind of um readings of the character is that i think there's this assumption that people are kind of envisioning themselves almost as like victims and enjoying that whereas i don't necessarily think that is the case i think a lot of people have this kind of weird completely misguided idea of themselves as like accomplices like you know, I'm like, oh, I can fix him. Or like if they can't fix him, they can join him.
0: Yeah, and obviously that's just not yeah, yeah. this is
1: something that kind of annoys me. And that's
0: what happens with you. That's what happens with you. Because yeah, that's literally up, what happens with you. Yeah, they get married and then they start mm-hmm. like doing it, together, doing it together,
1: yeah. together, don't they? But isn't I get and this is hobby. just something that I don't know, I find kind of dangerous in a way. A little bit complacent, dangerous media. Yeah, dangerous media corrupting the minds of our youth. Shut down Tumblr, sensor. But it is kind of true that some people. I do just think, well, you're quite naive. You know, <laughs> when I see the way they talk about media, it's true. They are. No, no, no I know what
0: you there's mean. There's some naive yeah. people
1: out there. But um, yeah, there's this kind of idea of like, oh, you know, no one understands me, just like how no one understood Billy's pain.
2: Mm. And
1: I just think, I just think a lot of the time it's poor media literacy, and kind of also kind of just like a sad in general, like, failure perhaps on some girls' part because, again, of, like, the way in which they're using media codes to, like, read everything around them to kind of, like, identify Mm. with other women. They just kind of, like, can't do it, or at least they can't possibly do it over an attractive man. I don't know. Maybe I'm being problematic there. Maybe I'm not giving teenage girls enough agency.
0: I don't know. I think it's a type of attitude... I, I think it's it's bound up, of course, in sort of sexual appeal and looks and all that kind of stuff. But I think there's also something attractive about that edgelord mm. attitude, you know, where you're like, mm. I'm screwed up because of media. And it's like, it's not me yeah. doing this. It's like, it's the culture and I don't have it's any agency. You know, I could have
1: been happy, but, you know, bloody mum and dad and the movies wouldn't
0: let me it's like in once upon a time in hollywood where you have the manson cult and they're they're like let's use violence on the people that taught us violence Mm. i am what you made me you made me like this (laughs) it's i think there's something very attractive about surrendering your agency and kind of going with that argument where you're like yeah this makes sense because nothing means anything anymore Mm. you know um and i think at a time of the 90s if you are, quote unquote, getting desensitized to to violence by the media and your life is media in the sense that these kids, when they're in the film, they are sitting around together, watching films, using films as a way of passing the time, but also a way of relating to one another through films, you know? How many times do you start conversations with friends being like, oh, have you seen that? And like, oh yeah, what did you think of it? You know, you you your personality is created through your interactions with media, but then also through your conversations with other people and the way that you, you relate to others through media.
1: And I think that that is part of this whole kind of like accomplice mentality as well, that like these people kind of have in their attraction. Yeah. They don't know attract attracted, they identify with them.
0: And it's like, yeah, we're not like other people. Yeah, not like that other vibe. girls. We, we know what the world's really like. Yeah, it's very nihilistic. I think that is the attraction. You just want to surrender all sense of social responsibility and then if that's coupled with like a hot guy (laughs)
1: let's just end it there shall we (laughs) that is all we have time for this week at the ghastly podcast from now on you will be able to find the links to all these articles that we reference in the description of all of the episodes so you know check that out after you finish listening if you want if you to. wanted
0: like a very comprehensive uh, articulate look at the things that we've hinted yes. at today then there they are
1: for now I guess it just remains for me to tell you what our next episode is which will be as we mentioned before earlier in the episode Wes Craven's New Nightmare which came out in 1994 and could arguably be seen as kind of a prototype of Scream we'd love to know what you think as well don't forget to like give us a rating I recommend us to your friends stay safe and um, keep listening.